Hello. I'm Sharia Parker, the Executive Director of Operations of Wana Creek Presbyterian, and I wanted to briefly speak about my beginning here. I was in a very comfortable position prior to coming to WCPC and planning and working out my path to the next, what I thought was good. But God had other plans, and we all know his plans are better than ours. So with prayer and pause, I felt led to come to Walnut Creek Presbyterian, and although it was uncomfortable, I am so glad I took the step. I have never worked with a more passionate and compassionate team than we have here at WCPC. Passionate about the work they do and compassionate about the people and the missions they serve. Being here has shown me that sometimes new beginnings require stepping out of what is comfortable into something new, and I am so glad that I did. Today, I will be reading both Genesis 1, 1 through 26 and Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Genesis 1, 1 through 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called dry ground land, and gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then he said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was good and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. 
So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their, their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I'm uh, so glad to welcome you here to Walnut Creek Presbyterian Church. I join uh, Ryan and Tommy and Sharia. Uh, my name is Bart Garrett. I'm the lead pastor here. And I love what Sharia said about uh, stepping out into things that are uncomfortable. Um, I'm wearing a t-shirt today to preach, which is uncomfortable for me. But the staff wanted to wear t-shirts today and what you will do for love. Uh, I love our staff. Um, and so I'm happy to wear a t-shirt. It is comfortable for me, actually. It's just, you know, you know what I mean. Um, I had a, uh, a friend who's really a mentor, and I like to say about this guy that his stories often begin where our stories end. And what I mean by that is, like, he would go to the U2 concert. I'm a huge U2 fan. We could all go to the U2 concert. It is conceivable that maybe someone offers us a backstage pass and we get to go behind the scenes with U2. That could happen. But then my friend's story would end the next morning for breakfast in the White House Rose Garden, eating breakfast with Bono, and I couldn't remember if it was George Bush or Barack Obama, so whichever one you like better, uh, they're having breakfast together. And my friend just sort of always got connected to people like that, and he was connected to a, a very famous young musician, I will not tell you his name, but the fame happened very quickly, and uh, he was struggling. And so my friend reached out to me and said, I think this guy would benefit uh, talking to you. So he's going to call you at this particular time from an unlisted number. And he did. And we had this conversation. And in the midst of his struggles and his tears, uh, he started talking about the craft of making music. And he said, you know, one of the things I lament most in this Spotify era is the shuffle feature. Because it rips the story right out of the album. 
He says, every album tells a story from first song to last song, and I don't like that people can just simply push shuffle. And I think about that sometimes as we kind of shuffle through life to the next game or barbecue or party or job or relationship or city or vacation. And now we're coming out of this pandemic and people are saying things to us like, it's time to get up and get going again. And the reality is, to some degree or another, uh, the last two and a half years have produced a ton of stress and anxiety and fear, and we also have a bit of an energy depletion. Our reserves are gone, and I think it's a good time to push pause and ask questions like, is my life on shuffle? Or do I have a storyline? How do I show up in the church this morning? How do I show up in the world? Getting back to essential questions like, who am I? Where am I going? How am I going to get there? And that's what this series, uh, Once Upon a Beginning, is really all about. I want us to be captured again by this great story. So we're going to start at the very beginning, Genesis, which means beginning. Uh, A few years ago, I was teaching a class on Genesis 1 through 3, and I had probably read 25 scholars, there's a ton of work on this particular passage, and I was completely overwhelmed, and I went to one of my uh, best friends from graduate school who became an Old Testament professor, and I said, could you just tell me what is Genesis 1 through 3 all about? And he looked at me in a very professorial way, you know, he's sort of like uh, grabbing his beard, and he just says, relationships. Relationship. That's it. That's what it's all about. But do you guys hear that? Do you hear that whirring background noise? Do you hear that white noise? Well, what about evolution? Yes, no, maybe so. Well, what about uh, Adam and Eve? Are they real people? I mean, was this 24-hour, six literal days? Is the world 6,000 years old? You know, maybe you're exploring Christian faith. You came with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and this is where you look at Christians and you're like, oh, they're so cute. How anti-science of them. Or or maybe you're a a believer, and this is that one piece of the faith you're not sure what to do with. It's like if you get by a piece of Ikea furniture, and you put it together, and there's some extra parts, and you don't want your spouse to see them, so you just sort of throw them away. I'm not speaking from experience here, right? I think this comes from a couple misperceptions, though. I think it's a, it's a misperception about faith and science, and it's also a misperception about this book. So before we get into this text and into the series, I, I want to say a word about each of them. Um, firstly, we have this misperception that faith and science are actually in conflict with one another. They're contradictory to one another. And that's actually a very peculiar American thing. It doesn't happen in Europe. It doesn't happen in India. It happens, I think, because of a couple books that came out in the 1850s, one of them written by Andrew White, who's the founding president of Cornell University, entitled A History of Warfare Between Faith and Science. And it created for us this warfare motif, and prior to it, there was an occasional skirmish between faith and science, but they were actually harmonious. They were actually even symbiotic. So now we see uh, this embittered embattlement between faith and science, and it's a misperception. It's actually a fabrication, and we're going to talk more about that in a class next month on faith and science. You should come. Uh, But secondly, I think there's a misperception regarding the book of Genesis. 
You know, we treat in our day the book of Genesis like a science book. So we ask questions of it like, how old is the earth? Does the Bible disprove evolution? Do Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Are they innies? Are they outies? Did they have umbilical cords? You see where I'm going here. But these questions actually fall on deaf ears because Genesis is not a science book. And in fact, the art and science of biblical interpretation is that you cannot know what a text means without first knowing what the text meant. In other words, what is the original audience hearing? What is the original author saying? Um, Beginning next week, I'm going to teach two foundations courses during our middle hour on Scripture and how Scripture shows up as God's Word, and I I hope you would join us. But Genesis 1 through 3 is actually not a science book. It's what's called, in its genre, an ancient cosmology. And ancient cosmologies don't deal with the how questions of mechanism. They deal with the why questions of, of origin, of destiny. And in fact, there were several ancient cosmologies that sprung up around the time the scriptures was written, and that should not rip you away from your faith. In fact, they're, they're very similar to this ancient cosmology in some respects, but they're also very, very different. In fact, Genesis has been called a polemical poem. Why? Because it actually is picking at these other ancient mythologies. The young kids these days would say that Moses is spitting bars as he's throwing this poetry down, like two of you knew what that meant. My 15-year-old is one of them. But the juxtaposition in this ancient cosmology is Moses is saying, no, there's not a pantheon of gods. There's one true God. And this one true God's character is love and power not lust and violence. And the cosmos and the other ancient cosmologies was created literally out of sex or out of war. But this one instead is created out of this love and power. And humankind is seen in this cosmology as dignified. They were only a utility in the other cosmologies, servants to the gods. And most significantly, this cosmology describes an intimate engagement that God has with the cosmos. Did you catch the back and forth conversation as Sharia was reading it? God speaks. The cosmos responds. The pattern that each of the six days displays accentuates this intimate relationship. And God said, let there be, and there was. And he called this, this, and that, that. And he actually quite literally named things. And it was good. It was good. God is involved and intentional and even intimate. And this is captured by a song. So consider this for a moment. However you're stepping into church this morning, whatever you believe about faith or Christianity, you deeply believe it, you're skeptical about it, at least get hit with this. The Christian scriptures begin with a song. We, we know the power of song, right? That song. They're playing our song. This is my favorite song. Oh, I love this song. Well, this series takes us back to the beginning to a song, a song about relationship. And we're going to be talking in the coming weeks about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another and our relationship with rest and our relationship with work. But today I want to talk about 
a peculiar thing, our relationship with the cosmos itself. I want to spend a few minutes here, because if you've spent any time around church or any time around Christianity, you've probably heard it said like this, God is forgiver because you are sinner. Or God is healer because you are wounded, sick, and sore. And those things, I believe, are true. But before those things even happened, I think it's best to understand God's relationship to the cosmos like this. God is gracious host, and the world is invited guest. So when you sit under a sacred canopy of redwood trees, or in the mist and salt by the sea, bone and feather, proton and electron, we are summoned by God's invitation. So imagine you receive in the mail a you're invited invitation, and it's to a great party, and even if you don't like parties, just go with me on this. You know, this is a party, you love the host of this party, and this party, get this, is actually going to be thrown for you. Well, next week we'll talk more about that. What does it mean uh, to be in relationship with this host, with this God? But this week, think about it again as relationship to this party. How are you showing up in this party? Herman Bavink, this uh, Dutch Reformed theologian, over the past 10 years or so, his work is being translated into English. So if you're uh, a scholar or a pastor and you're in like Reformed circles, it's like Taylor Swift dropped a new album. I mean, this is amazing. It's amazing. And you get to his chapter on creation, and Herman Bavink writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, ellipsis, with you and me in mind. It's very good. Every aspect of this party is designed exquisitely for you and for me. See, the alternative to this is what our culture says about the cosmos, namely that it's a crapshoot. It's arbitrary. It's chance. So Stephen Jay Gould, the great paleontologist of the last century, he writes this. He says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because comets struck the earth and wiped out the dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available, because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exist. In other words, meaning is made up. Purpose is contrived. What we think of as the real substance of life is really just fiction. And we must maintain that fiction, right, in order to stay sane. In fact, our most gravitational moments, the moments that, that pull us in, our most meaningful memories, our most joyful occasions turn out to be the emptiest. Why? Because we work so hard to pretend that there is a point. Camus is right. Life is absurd. Sartre is right. Life is meaningless. Carl Sagan was right. The cosmos is all that is, all that was, and all that ever will be. See, most of us are not courageous enough to live so coherently with this belief. So what do we do? We, we avoid it at all costs. We borrow from other systems to find some meaning. 
But C.S. Lewis, the great Christian philosopher, once wrote that if your map is not actually coherent with reality, then you should trade up for a better map. And that's what he's after when he writes, no philosophical theory which I have yet come across is a radical improvement on the words of Genesis that in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. See, otherwise our origin is an accident. Our destiny is just going to be an incident. But if our origin is accidental and our destiny is, is incidental, then life in the middle is just inconsequential. It's of no consequence. Yet I think there's a better map. There is an alternative. It's not to, to make up meaning, but to have meaning make you. See, the cosmos isn't a crapshoot. It's a creation. And if the cosmos is a creation, then things like beauty are not just mirages. It's real and substantial and full of gravitas. You experienced it in the poem as Sharia read it. The rhythm, the repetition, the meter, the cadence of this song is beauty. Light and dark and water and land and plants and trees and sun and moon and stars and fish and bird and land creature. At every turn, under every rock, behind every tree, underneath the water's surface, up in the sky, there is beauty. The Pacific coastline with the swirling foam gazing into the eyes of a lover, the swirl of a fine glass of wine, a snow-capped mountain sunset, a Van Gogh, the form and function of an iPhone, a vineyard hedged by rose bushes and framed by olive trees. It's beauty. And what does it do? It, it snatches us from a small story and it places us into this grand epic. It pushes pause on a life on shuffle, and it gives us the storyline that we believe in the deepest parts of who we are must be true. You see, if the cosmos is just a crapshoot, then what we're going to do is we're going to dismiss beauty as an illusion, or we're going to deify beauty. It's all there is, so we have to worship it. So our vacations need to get bigger and better every year. It's why we worship youth today. It's why we obsess around celebrity today. But if the cosmos is a creation, then beauty, we don't have to dismiss it or deify it. We can simply delight in it like God did. It is good. 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 Ten times. It is good, God says. And then he places us right in the middle of it all. And he says, I want you to exercise authority. I want you to steward it. And we're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. As a loving parent would, to bring some order to chaos. What I've done for you in this blessing over you, I want you to bless the cosmos with it. And I know as we conclude, some of you are thinking this, and maybe after the service you may even say this to me. What planet are you from? where shiny, happy people just soak in beauty. Have you watched the news lately? Have you opened your eyes lately? This is a broken, screwed-up place. And it is. And that's why we included a snippet of Genesis 3, and we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But we are, I think, designed 
for a Genesis 1 and 2 world, yet we were birthed into, we showed up into a Genesis 3 world. And Christianity can actually acknowledge, I think, that, that this is the world not as it is intended to be. And this actually gives Christians resources to call brokenness brokenness, and pain pain, and sadness sadness. It's what causes us to long for restoration and to hunger for something more. Because if the cosmos is only a crapshoot, then brokenness is a mere byproduct of survival of the fittest. It's natural selection. So we're going to just ping pong between avoiding brokenness altogether or enduring it. Woody Allen once wrote, we are adrift, alone in the cosmos, wreaking monstrous violence on one another out of frustration and pain. He gave no punchline to that. Lily Tomlin in the same genre once said, we are all in this alone. But we aren't. Because you see, if the cosmos is a creation, if it's good and beautiful, then brokenness is ultimately not welcome here. So we'll turn towards the end of this series to John 1, one of the four Gospels, which starts just like Genesis with great intention, in the beginning, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you don't know much about Christian scripture, that's the story of Jesus, the beautiful one who became broken to make us beautiful again. The creator, the one who made everything, who had become unmade on the cross that we might be remade. So I want to give you, as we close, just one homework assignment for this week. I hope you'll practice it every day at some point, but, but here's the homework assignment, as you consider the question, how do I show up in the world? If God is a gracious host and we are invited guests, and you consider the question, how do I show up in the world? I want you to look for three things. Everyday beauty, everyday brokenness, and everyday longings for renewal and restoration. You, you can use Genesis 1 as a template. Go outside in the middle of the day, maybe under the hot sun or gentle breeze, or you see a wispy cloud and ask the question, what is beautiful about this? What is broken about this? And how am I longing for renewal and restoration? Or you go out at night in the chill air. You see the, the canopy of constellations. Or the land and sea, the purple that the sun makes on Mount Diablo, or the blue of the San Francisco Bay. Or the vegetation, seed-bearing plants, the redwood canopy, the succulent garden, the sea life, the land life. And ask three questions. What is beautiful about this? What is broken about this? And how does it cause me to long for renewal and restoration? Or more specifically, how do you show up tomorrow morning in your cubicle? Or when you're feeding breakfast to your three-year-old? Or when you as a grandparent see that three-year-old grandchild smile or it drinks after work or maybe you're in your 10th year of retirement and you wake up in the morning and you drape your legs over the side of the bed and you put your feet on the floor for a new day or you smell a newborn soft head 
or you find a new single track trail for running or biking, ask yourself the question, what's beautiful about this moment? What's broken about this moment? And how does it have me longing for restoration? God is a gracious host and we are God's invited guests. Welcome to the party. Would you pray with me? God, we need you as healer and we need you as forgiver. But before the story went askew, we need to know again that you are a gracious host who has invited us into a cosmic party that will last forever and forever and forever. Uh, God, would that grant us perspective even this week as we're captured by everyday beauty as we sink into the realities of brokenness and as it intensifies our longings for you to make all things new. It's in your name we pray. Amen.